Welcome everybody from around the world. Hello everyone, this is Karen Goldberg and welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. Here's what's coming up. These days, people are talking about the media. They're upset by it, they're frustrated by it, and I'm very pleased and honored to say that today we have the real deal in the guest of Howard Rosenberg, a Pulitzer Prize winner who's gonna talk with us about what is going on with media, with news, and with journalism. And before our conversation, I wanna say a little bit about Howard Rosenberg. He is a distinguished journalist and an outstanding television critic who worked for the Los Angeles Times for 28, 25 years, beginning in 1978 until 2003. And I might add that Howard was one of those columnists who when people bought the LA Times or uh, were subscribing to it, he would be one of the first reporters that people would want to read about. It was there that he won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism and continued after his retirement from the Los Angeles Times as a professor at the University of Southern California, teaching critical writing in the School of Cinema and news ethics in the Annenberg School of Journalism. He retired from the University of Southern California in 2019. While at the Los Angeles Times, he had the opportunity to travel widely, reporting on various issues related to television coverage. For an example, he covered seven United States presidential nomination conventions, which are an extremely big event here in the United States and happen every four years. He also was in Yugoslavia before the 1984 Winter Olympics and reported from three trips to Israel and the West Bank. So thank you, Howard, for your time and welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So let's start with kind of a begin with the whole idea of, you know, why did you become a journalist? Uh, how did I get into this racket? Well, I'll tell you, uh, it was sort of a circuitous route. I, when I was in high school, in fact, I wanted to be a hairdresser because I thought it was a good way to meet girls. But then my parents had disabused me of that quite quickly. And I went on to uh, the University of Oklahoma, uh, where I began majoring in journalism and uh, disliked the curriculum there uh, so much that uh, second semester my senior year, I switched my major to history. And uh, my circuitous route uh, continued after that because I spent a year um, working for my father in his uh, toy factory. Uh, this is after I'd gotten uh, married. And after that, I went on to grad school at the University of Minnesota where I had this uh, sort of wacky idea that I wanted to become a foreign correspondent. Uh, I always could write well, and it seemed like a very glamorous thing to do, the trench coat and, and that uh, kind of thing. 
And uh, after I got uh, my MA uh, there uh, at the University of Minnesota uh, in political science, my wife and I uh, uh, hitchhiked around Europe for about five months. And, uh, oh, I should, uh, I omitted the fact that while I was in grad school, I had got a job uh, with uh, a small weekly paper outside of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, the White Bear Press, 4,500 circulation, in which I did everything, uh, did ads, sold ads, uh, wrote stories, et cetera, et cetera. And that was really my first job as a journalist. Anyway, after we got back uh, from Europe, uh, I got a job um, with uh, the Moline Dispatch as a reporter. And the irony being that I got a job uh, with that paper based on uh, news stories that I had stolen from the St. Paul Pioneer Press. We were such a small uh, newspaper in White Bear Lake that my publisher urged me to steal uh, stories from the uh, St. Paul Pioneer Press and just put new tops on them. And I had no sense of ethics whatsoever. And I thought that sounds good to me. That's what I did. And based on those stories, I got a job at the Moline Dispatch. And, uh, you know, I couldn't do a thing. I was totally inexperienced. Well, no wonder, no wonder you went into ethics. You know, you were, you were testing uh, ethics yeah. because you were paying dues for the, the, the sins of your past. But I guess I, I really was trying to, to, to get to the idea of besides journalism being glamorous, was there was there some other reason why uh, you wanted to become a journalist? Well, you know, initially it was because there's something that seems something very glamorous about it. I've always in, in envisioned journalism as being on one side of the line and the public's on the other side of the line. And you always know more. Uh, than the public, and that was always that was always exciting to me, and it remained exciting for me. I mean, and there's something it's almost indescribable about about covering a news story and finding out things. It's like being a detective, and I always enjoyed that, and I always enjoyed writing. I always could write since I was very young. I could write well. What I didn't have was experience. Well, and you're saying, in other words, kind of. Uh... Being a journalist, it sounds like from from your description that you have to have this uh, tremendously enormous sense of curiosity. You have to be curious, and you have to and to be a good journalist. You have to be a very astute observer because that's what you're doing. You're observing things, and you're telling people, and you're articulating what you've been observing, and that's the key to it. And you well, know, to you me, say, when you say assertive, assertive observer, what what do you mean by assertive? an astute observer, okay? You have to have very keen eyes and senses because that's that's critical to the stories that you write or the stories that you edit or the stories that you interpret. And the rest is experience, just gaining experience and understanding of your beat. And uh, for me, the charm uh, never ended. Well, how, how lucky, how wonderful for you. So talking about beat, so how did the beat of becoming a critic of television coverage, how did that come about, that beat? Okay, uh, after I left the Moline Dispatch, I got a job with the Louisville Times as a reporter. And I now, spent Louis about... Let's say Louisville Times. Uh, we're talking about Louisville, Kentucky? 
Louisville, Kentucky, yes. Yeah, okay, the state of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry? The state of Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, so for our listeners who are around the world, that's a state in the United States, kind of in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. That's right. Louisville is a metropolitan big area in the state of Kentucky. And uh, I was a reporter there for... Oh, I would say about five years, and I, uh, you know, attained attained some status. I was head of city hall beat, which is important. What was an important beat, and I figured I wanted to do something else, you know. And at the time, uh, the paper did not have a television critic. I lobbied uh, my bosses till they let me become the television critic, and I became an immediate hit. Not because I knew anything, I didn't. I didn't know anything about television except it was something basically you watched on the screen. But I've always been very opinionated and always been free with my opinion. And at that time, most of the people writing about television around the country, around the United States, were old-timers who just rewrote uh, television uh, network releases. And that's all they did until one day they calcified their desks and they just <laughs> Right. But I always had an opinion, and I was very free to write about my opinion. I didn't mind sharing my opinions, and that made me stand out. So at least in Louisville, I was an immediate hit. Well, then uh, was it kind of a an easy uh, jump from standing out in Louisville, Kentucky, to being noticed in Los Angeles, California? Yes. Well, about that, after about seven years as a television critic with the Louisville Times, I thought, gee, you know, I ought to share my wisdom with the wider world. You know, the, the world deserves more of me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I applied to uh, lots of papers, and I found out that uh, there weren't very many papers who were interested in me, despite of my uh, celebrity in Louisville. But one that was, was the Los Angeles Times, which at that moment was one of the great papers in the United States. And it so happened that the television critic they had at the time, man, a very talented and well-known man named Cecil Smith, uh, was getting older. He had eye problems. They were looking around for somebody. And I submitted my application. I sent my resume, all my clips, et cetera, et cetera. And long story short, uh, the L.A. Times hired me in 1978, and I became television critic. Just that simple. Well, you know, the great thing was that you came a, became a television critic. We, we would say, like, uh, I don't. Know, I think we maybe we need to kind of define what that means. But uh, but the the thing is, you're you're in what used to be called Television City. Los Angeles was considered one of the major cities, right, of the development of television programming and maybe they, maybe they particularly liked you because you had no modesty from what you're describing as thinking well, you needed you needed a better you needed a greater audience for your ta- your great talents which yeah, which yeah. they which they which happened when you came to the Los Angeles Times but maybe we yeah. can we can back up a little bit and you know what does it mean to be a uh, to, to to write criticism of television what, what is that well, it depends on the newspaper you're working for. I was very fortunate in that the LA Times, number one, was very wealthy at that time, and one of the great new, a great newspaper, and they gave me almost complete autonomy. I mean, I could do everything short of endorsing presidents, 
And I was very lucky. And, you know, it, it's my nature to be very interested in politics and the wider world. And also, uh, I was a, a columnist slash reporter. In other words, a big part of all my, my columns uh, was reporting. That was a big part of it. And I always, you know, to me, writing about television meant more than just reviewing the latest show. Uh, if that were the case, that would have bored me after a while. But television was about everything, so I was able to write uh, about everything. And I'll give you some examples. I mean, some you mentioned going to Israel and, and the West Bank. And the reason I did that, the only times was getting a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, letters from people complaining uh, that it was biased against Israel. Okay, uh, that it was uh, biased toward uh, the Palestinians. And I thought it would be a great idea for me to go over there and do some columns, uh, whether that was true, find out for myself. And, you know, several, I, I did one piece, for example, the, uh, example, I went around with 60 Minutes. And the, by the way, this was during the first Intifada. And I went, went around with 60 Minutes on a story about uh, two teenage girls one was an Israeli girl, one was a Palestinian girl, and the Israeli girl was the victim uh, of a bombing. Uh, the Palestinian girl was the suicide bomber. And the juxtaposition was just amazing. Uh, both the girls were teenagers. Both of them even looked alike. It was just quite an amazing thing. And we were in the homes of the parents of both. The uh, Israeli parents were very distraught, and the Palestinian parents were very celebratory. Their daughter had become uh, a martyr. Another time I went out with a CNN crew taping Israeli soldiers uh, chasing a Palestinian accused of being something, accused of something. I think it was near Ramallah. And uh, I used that to uh, show the narrow, narrow reality of the, pro, of the uh, television camera, of any camera. It only shows you what's inside the frame of this other world is going on on either side of it. And uh, another time I went to, to the city of Novelis, which is the, the major city uh, in the West Bank, and interviewed uh, six uh, young guys. These were elf Fatah uh, guys. And uh, we were sitting in a room. They were nice young guys. They very friendly. Oh, I would say in their mid twenties. And uh, I wanted to ask them why they did certain things. I remember asking one of them, you know, how can you justify killing Israeli children? And he answered me as matter of factly as I'm talking right now. And he said, uh, I can justify it because an Israeli child. Uh, is an Israeli bullet, and they will grow up mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. guns. It was just amazing. And it yeah. demonstrated, yeah. which I wrote about, was that you and I and people like us cannot get into the mind of a radical, whether it's a radical Arab or a Jew. Yes. Or important yeah. to understand. That's what I wrote about. Well, so so really... Yeah, it's very sad to think that uh, decades, many decades later, we're still struggling with the same issues and uh, 
you know, the, the same, the same questions of all around the world of people killing one another, innocent, you know, people and children being uh, hurt and, and killed. So basically I, I, I think I'm hearing you say that as a, as a television critic, you really, you're trying to uh, educate the viewer of television to be more critical of what you're seeing through the camera of the television, in a sense. You're asking them to take a wider look at the story that's being reported, am I right? Of course, I mean, there are times when you just want to veg out and just sit there and let it run, run right over you. But I think it's very important to know about what you're viewing. Okay, and to be critical, not necessarily uh, savagely critical, but just to look at television uh, through critical eyes. And uh, that's why I have always been an advocate of media literacy, uh, really understanding uh, what we're watching and teaching media, media literacy, even in elementary school which is something that has been ignored pretty much in the United States, much more prevalent in other countries, especially uh, Canada. Uh, and, there, and the idea is to really deconstruct media to understand uh, its purposes and, and why you are being influenced by it. And there was somebody in Canada, for example, uh, who taught media to elementary children by equating it with a, uh, a Happy Meal, a McDonald's Happy Meal. Uh, she would say things like, uh, okay, what's in a Happy Meal? And the kids would okay, say, okay, there's a paper bag it comes in. There's a, a hamburger bun and maybe the French fries rice. And she would say, that's great. Now, what's in each of those? And what's inside the meat, the hamburger? What's inside the bun? What did it take to make that paper bag? Uh, and then she would draw a web around this and make all these con all these uh, connections. What's in a hamburger? What uh, there were cows before there was the hamburger, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. The idea was to educate children what was inside of things. Mm -hmm. what was, mm -hmm. And it, it, I thought it was just a brilliant concept uh, that I wish uh, were taught more, were taught more in the United States and yes. around the world. Yes, that right. would that would be a great addition to the curriculum for children. It would be absolutely. So you know, talking about that, I mean, when you think about uh, those days, well, as as we as I mentioned, you left in two thousand three, and here we are in twenty twenty two. So nineteen years later, what do you see? What do you see happening? Uh, let's say particularly with the news. And, yeah. and media, uh, it's it's hard to even get a handle on on what those terms mean anymore. Well, it's harder and harder and harder. I mean, the definition of journalism of a journalist has has changed. You know, you can practice medicine without being a physician. You can practice law in a courtroom. You cannot uh, practice law in a courtroom without being a member of the bar. To be a certified public accountant, you have to be certified to be a journalist. No license is required, no exam, no nothing. It's always been that way. You know, just as you can practice plumbing, anybody will can practice uh, journalism. But back in the day, you were a journalist only if you were reporting, photographing, uh, interpreting, or in commenting on news uh, in newspapers. You had to do it in newspapers, in television, radio, magazines, books, 
But the ubiquity of the internet uh, today and social media has erased uh, all those uh, criteria. And because that, of that, we're seeing really the blurring of lines between fact and fiction, between objectivity and, and subjectivity. And that is one of the manyest, one of the manyest things we've seen. Uh, you know, we're all the sums of many influences. So, you know, complete objectivity is impossible. Uh, as soon as you decide what to include in the story and what to admit, uh, you've made a subjective decision. And all you can do as a responsible journalist is suppress uh, your subjective impulses. Uh, but a lot of people don't do that. And subjectivity now is all over uh, the internet. And everybody's a journalist. You know, you have a cell phone, you go out and you go out and capture a piece of, uh, of life and you're a journalist. And it, it occurred to me uh, that uh, just recently uh, that this 18-year-old Cretan uh, who uh, streams himself in real time, gunning down 10 people in Buffalo, New York, in the United States, States was in effect acting as a journalist. He was beaming his story live to any platform mm. that accepted. Just mm. as his brain had accepted these white supremacist creeds available to him on all of social media. Mm. Uh, yes. Yeah, and so in other words now, all these stories, however false or misleading or potentially dangerous or inciting, are being pumped out and going viral in an instant. And the perpetrators are, are so-called citizen journalists who are part of this long sought after democratization of media in which, and I'm being sarcastic here, at long last everyone, not just the liberal elite class, will have access to the media. Uh, in theory, it's wonderful. I mean, what better uh, than a democracy? But in practice, it's turned out to be catastrophic because it's endless, there are no guardrails, and there are no speed limits. And I must say that speed is a part of this dangerous equation. Mm -hmm. You know, some, year, some years ago, uh, uh, Charles Feldman and I wrote a book that turned out to be prescient. The title was No Time to Think, the menace of media speed and the 24-hour news cycle. The premise being the speed of technology. Now, by the way, it's 24 seconds. The speed of technology allows too little time to think before making life-altering decisions. No time to think before deciding anything. That, that goes for our leaders. It goes for us. And it has enormous consequences. Well, you know, I wonder if what you're describing also is that, that that one of the most profound consequences has manifested itself by the fact, especially in the United States, but this maybe this is a worldwide phenomenon also, is how difficult it is to talk with people uh, in your own life who have different opinions than you. In other words, uh, there was a time when people could could have different opinions and they could just, you know, be able to express that and maybe in some ways expand each other's uh, awareness of, of different ways of looking at a particular subject. Whereas now uh, it's almost impossible because people find that when they begin to talk to someone 
who has a different opinion, it, it uh, descends into an argument rather mm -hmm. than an exchange of information. Yes, that's true. But, you know, it's been, been that way for a while. I'll, I'll give you one example. You know, about the only time I've ever been scared uh, in my job as a television columnist, uh, when I was in the state of Kansas in the United States, it's the Midwest, and, and I was in the boondocks, uh, and uh, I was interviewing a white supremacist who had a radio show, and, uh, you know, he spewed all this racist, terrible stuff, uh, insightful stuff. And uh, he ordered me out of his house when I asked him a question he didn't like. And he was scared. I was scared to death about it, about him. He scared me. And that was like a metaphor or for the way people can be, whether you can't disagree with them. You can't even ask questions about why they believe certain things because uh, it's impossible to have an intelligent discussion anymore. And that's increasingly the case, I think, because of the, net, because of the ubiquity of the internet and all these individual platforms that are out there. And it, everything becomes an argument. And whatever you say goes viral immediately. And I mean in seconds. Yeah. And it, by the time it gets around, it goes. Everything goes around become, becomes something different. Yeah. It goes through another voice, another voice, another voice, another voice, until pretty soon it's entirely different than what you first originally yeah. said. Very yeah. dangerous. Mm -hmm. You could say in the United States that you know that is also reflected in in sort of a, a kind of a paralysis of governing. You know, especially uh, I would say on the federal le level here, that our our own government, you know, can't seem to even ha have a conversation in which people can come to some sort of compromised agreement, so that we can move forward on solving problems. And it's it's uh, you know, it's caused it, what you're describing has caused a tremendous amount of disturbance in I think in the basic fabric of the society currently in the United States uh, and the feeling that, you know, are we, are we one society or have we broken up into all these different opinions and arguing? Yeah. Well, look, uh, it's very easy. And I'll, and I'll mention Donald Trump to blame it all on Trump. But a lot of this has been happening for a long time. And I blame some of it on the part of the media. Uh, you know, uh, when I taught uh, ethics at the University of uh, Southern California, I urged uh, that my students operate with the golden rule. And I know that sounds very corny, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It sounds corny. But the point is the First Amendment in the United States give the press, gives the press broad freedoms because a free and independent media, including the freedom to screw up and be unfair, uh, are the foundation of democracy and better, better a flawed free press than one that runs smoothly under the thumb of government. But just because we can do something allowed under the Constitution of the United States doesn't always mean it's the ethical thing to do. Uh, if a reporter, for example, I can hound you with my cell phone or my TV camera, uh, that's allowed. You won't go to jail for that. But it's not necessarily the ethical thing to do. And it, 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 in a very broader sense, for example, I can run only the most unflattering photos of Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani or Josh Hawley 
or Marjorie Taylor Greene or name your crazy Republican in the United States. Uh, I can do that as MSNBC does, a very liberal uh, cable network in the United States and others in the mainstream, mainstream media do. I can only show them when they're snarling or foaming at the mouth uh, uh, to make my point that they're unreasonable or incoherent. I can use their quotes out of context or, or use impartial quotes that twist their meaning. Is that legal? Sure. Is it ethical? Absolutely not. But when I do that, okay, I increase, I feed this divisiveness mm-hmm. inside, mm-hmm. whether you're on your left on your right. And to that degree, I think media on both uh, sides of the political spectrum have done that. Well, I think also when you were, you know, you were mentioning Trump and and not saying and not definitely not putting all of this on on one person. You might you maybe we could say he was the outcome of what had been evolving for many years. And simply by having somebody like that in the position of president of the United States and being a, a person who relished the idea of confusing uh, truth and lies, lies no. and truth. So he, he kind of up he kind of up the ante of what no. had been going on for a long time. But as I said, he may have been the natural uh, the natural result of what you're describing had been going on for several years. Well, I I think he was the catalyst. I think all this was here. He didn't create uh, these millions of people who are acting as they are now. But he was the catalyst. They were waiting a button to push, and he was the button. I, I really believe that. And uh, and once you know you cross that line, uh, it's very to cross back the other way, and that's why I think it's uh, so dangerous. And you know, he's so, sort of a, a product of this feeling about the United States uh, and exceptionalism. Uh, that's you know that's why I have this sort of dystopian this dystopian view of uh, what the United States has in its future. And, you know, we in America, for example, take for granted and forget, forget that we are but a, just a tiny blip on the landscape of time, just as there have been other blips. The Romans, the Ottomans, the Persians, I need an historian there to help me. Uh, they assume they too assumed that they always hogged the spotlight as the United States has been doing for the last uh, 150 years. Uh, but in terms of global influence, uh, where are they now? And, you know, in the United States, every president always ends a speech uh, by saying, and God bless America. I mean, how presumptuous of us and what God should bless only us is if God has nothing better to do. It's, I think it's all a product of this uh, extreme uh, sense of exceptionalism in the United States that Trump has, has fed. Yes. And, and, and in a sense, yeah, we've, we all, we've lived that for, well, you're saying, you know, at least the, I would say maybe particularly since World War II you know, and the results of World War II that that it made the United States become uh, such an incredible world power, the great, you know, the greatest economy in the world. And and rather than accept that with humility, as you're as you're 
describing it, we we've really done the opposite, and and uh, Metro Bar News Media has encouraged mm-hmm. that thinking, and so we we've paid a price for that in terms of many of our relationships in the world, and now uh, things are even you know more complicated mm-hmm. than ever, and and I you know I know we're we're coming to the end of our conversation, and I just want to mention something that I talked about before, which is this, uh, I find very fascinating the, the, this idea of a news literacy uh, campaign. And I just mm-hmm. want to read the, the, the motto that they have here is um, mindlessly sharing information can be harmful to others and our society. Remember to check your sources and verify facts before sharing information online. And, you know, isn't that something to aspire to? Isn't that now no, we're so far away from that? You no, know, you know, no, I'm I'm all for that. I'm all for that. And, uh, you know, and, and before really, I just want to mention one thing that's very important. We were talking about changes in the news and I'll just throw out, throw out the year 2015. And the year should be obvious because it's roughly when Trump began his serious run for the GOP presidential nomination in this country, followed by his election a year later, then four miserable years in office, and then the fallout that needs no explanation. But, you know, there there used to be a a joke about the dryness of an NBC documentary. Uh, What is a typical NBC documentary? One about Adolf Hitler that gives equal attention to good points, to his good points and his bad points, right down the middle. It's absurd, right? But hardly more absurd than using that model when reporting about Trump and his opinions, whose duplicity, I believe, is so egregious that it cannot be framed in the way that good journalism always tried to frame stories in the past. Much that comes out of his mouth is so demonstrably false. His uh, BS about the election, for example, uh, that that the old he said, she said stories are dangerously ineffective and false uh, in themselves. And when the famously gray uh, New York Times uh, began using the word lie in conjunction with Trump, it gave cover to other conventional news organizations uh, to follow suit and in general address him and his most zealous acolytes uh, in the strongest terms. And on and on it goes. Let me just want to add one thing, the great danger is that once you cross that line, it's that much easier to cross another, and also that you won't be able to resume aspiring to objective reporting when the present Trump expired, danger has ended. Yes. Well, right. So so I think, and I think there's a general feeling in the United States uh, that we're in dangerous times. And I think that example you gave, uh, the most, most one of the most horrendous examples of what happened, the tragedy in Buffalo, New York, and the, the way that the that there was an opportunity for him to stream that online is just the you know the the ugliness and the horror of that uh, to to have a society that's doing something that's you know involved in that or you know worldwide really. I guess in, in order for us to to end on uh, something uh, happier and at least more optimistic note, I have to ask you: Is there any hope you feel for the future of news media of you know print television and of newspaper reporting well uh, i think you'd have to exclude print i you know probably within the next 
10 to 15 years, the only place you'll be able to find what we think of a newspaper now as will probably be under glass in a museum. But the news media will always go on in some form. Okay, it'll change. Uh, it'll go through a, a metamorphism. Uh, that's inevitable. We may not recognize it. We, uh, if we could go 10 to 20 years uh, ahead, it may, not, may be rather unrecognizable to us, but it will exist. Uh, and the freedom uh, to which it exists uh, will determine the shape uh, of this universe, I believe. Well, thank you so much, Howard, for being here today. And thank you for all the ways in which you really, in a sense, uh, were a teacher through through your criticism uh, with the Los Angeles Times and, and as a professor to, to younger people and newer people into the profession. So thank you for the contributions you've, you've always made and appreciate thank you. that. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Commentaries from the Edge. Please subscribe and you will be notified of all future episodes.